Welcome to Mythsterhood of the Traveling Tales. Join us as we roar the heavens and swim the seas in search of the spectacular and magical. Like the Hydra of Greek lore, our fangs can raise the dead, bringing lost skeletons back to life for an episode or two. But unlike our three-headed friend, we're not guarding the door to the underworld. No, we're blasting it wide open and inviting you to come explore with us. Hello, hello, misters, and welcome to episode 27 of Misterhood of the Travelling Tales. And with me today is Koji. Welcome, Koji. Hi, Jazz, and hi there, misters. Um, it's great to have you back. It's been a while since we had a chance to chat, and we did make up for lost time before we started recording, but that is beside the question. <laughs> um, today, we have one tiny bit of housekeeping to get through, and that is that my third podcast, because one was clearly not enough, has had its official launch on August 1st, and... One of the two inaugural guests was the very Koji you're listening to right now. So if you want to learn more about her poetry and about her amazing chapbook, Scars That Never Bled, do check out that episode. I will include links in the show notes, of course. And I think that's it. Well, except the regular one, of course. Which is, if we mispronounce names, we are so, so sorry. We're doing our best, but we would love to learn the correct pronunciation if any of our listeners out there know when we make mistakes. Absolutely. So, um, if there's nothing else to get to, let's get started. Right. So, this week we are back with more dragons from the South American continent. And where do you think we should start? I kind of feel like returning to Argentina. I mean, we've circled around it a wee bit already in the previous episode. Mm-hmm, right. But uh, which Argentinian dragon do you want to discuss this time? <sighs> I thought you'd never ask. His name is Teyu Yagua. He belongs in the folklore of the Guarani, who do spread beyond the borders of Argentina a good bit, expanding into Paraguay, Brazil, and Bolivia. His pedigree, well... It's complicated, as they say. Mm. <laughs> I kind of have to agree with that assessment. His mother was Karana, a human girl, but the granddaughter of the first people. Their names literally meant mother of the people and father of the people. And Karana was the daughter of their second son, who was a great and wise leader to his people. So Karana was then captured by Tao, who is like the personification of evil. There's... Ow! Oh God, that was one bit of housekeeping and that is puppy cameos because I cannot guarantee there will be none. She just bit my toe. What? And you can, can you hear her? She's like. <laughs> I can hear her growling. Yeah. What Has she decided your toe no, is the no, personification she, of evil? I don't, I think, no, I think she's just bored. But I mean, she's, she's a three month old puppy. So they're either sleeping, eating or bored. So. Um, I usually do edit out a lot of doggy cameos, but in the case of Miss Unari, um, the terror of the seven seas and everything in between, that's a bit hard because there's a, there might be a lot. So, so misters, I do apologize in advance. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, we have a third narrator this week. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I've heard of podcasts who have like a pod cat, but we have a pod puppy. <laughs> pod puppy, that is adorable. <laughs> so yeah, um, we I did say Tao was the personification of evil, and I think then I shrieked. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's n- not really any written sources available from the Guarani from before the arrival of the conquistadors, at which point many of the indigenous people were converted to Christianity, allowing their stories to be somewhat watered down or Christ-washed. Um, Christ-washed. Yeah, Christ-washed. I think, I mean, if we can whitewash things, we can Christ-wash them. This may explain... Which a lot of the world is. Yeah, very much. So this may explain why Tao is so similar to the Christian concept of the devil. Um, but luckily, many of the indigenous tribes also clung to their beliefs, allowing their stories to survive and be retold even today. Right. So Arase, the moon goddess who created the world together with the sun god Tupa, was sort of Karana's great-grandmother since she created the girl's grandparents. And since Tao was a kidnapping, rapey butthole, she cursed him. I mean, I can't blame her. But as a result of that curse, any child of Tao's would be deformed and monstrous. Sadly, since Karana was the one bearing those children, seven of them, in fact, this punished her as much as, or possibly more than, Tao. Since he's a jerk, I don't really feel sorry for him, but... Poor Kirana, oh my god. I know what you mean. Imagine being kidnapped, assaulted, and the children that come from that rape are then cursed and turned into monsters by your own grandmother. That poor, poor girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Kirana's first son was Teuyawa. He turned out to be a huge lizard with seven dog-like heads, and his eyes can shoot fire. Those seven heads do make navigating and moving around kind of awkward. Even in versions where he only has one head, the decreased mobility remains a trait of his. While he looked the most ferocious, Tupa, the other half of the divine creators, made sure his demeanor was not made to match. So Teyu Yagua was a calm and harmless beastie. Um, so people were pretty scared of his fiery gaze. I mean fiery gaze. Mm-hmm. There's something to be afraid of there. Yeah, good point. But but his diet consisted of fruit and honey, the latter provided by a helpful sibling. Among his responsibilities was the protection of fruit and buried treasure, because apparently he also quite liked caves and underground places. Teyu Yagua's second sibling, Boy Tui had the body of a snake and the head of a parrot. With scaly skin, a feathered head, and a forked tongue the colour of blood, he cuts quite the imposing figure as well. He makes his home in marshy areas and is quite fond of the humid atmosphere there, but he's also got a soft spot for flowers. He's worshipped as a guardian to the wetlands and aquatic animals. Apparently his gaze is no joke, and he can make a squawking sound that strikes terror into the hearts of all who hear it. All except those aquatic animals, I'm guessing, because it'd be a bit awkward to have them constantly terrified of their protector. Hmm, that's a good point. Um, like mentioned before, we have no written sources from the Guarani themselves. It turns out it's a bit hard to tell whether they worshipped him as such, or if it was more of a healthy respect from a safe distance or downright fear. Hmm... 
I mean, the descriptions of him include positive traits like the love of flowers and protecting animals. I, for one, am going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. As seen through a Western lens, in which we very much want to be in control of our environment, creatures like him who take it upon themselves to be guardian spirits might be viewed as evil and to be defeated, but I mean it's not hard to see the difference between that outlook and one that indigenous populations around the world seem to live by, which displays much more respect for their surroundings and the land that nourishes them. Yeah, exactly. If you look at it like that they might not be as opposed to guardians of the natural world around them. Definitely, definitely giving the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, of course, we do have to add that this is purely our own interpretation here. Um, but I mean, you have to be, we have to be honest about that. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of hard to not look at these stories and form an opinion of some sorts. Um, mm -hmm. but let's keep going. So the third of the siblings again appears to have the build of a serpent. This one called Monyai has two horns. And I think this is another new feature, but the horns seem to be multifunctional. I mean, they're usually Stabby, I suppose, but these are also antennae. That is so cool. It's like like a bug dragon. <laughs> yeah, I thought so too. So very, very cool. Monyai prefers to dwell in the open fields. He feeds on birds and climbs trees to hunt them. He also uses his antennae to dominate his prey. He's a bit of a thief, and while he's busy hiding the spoils of his crimes in caves, his victims are busy accusing each other. Ooh, so that's kind of devious. Mm. But at some point, people figured it out and decided to put a stop to the misdeeds of Monyai and his brothers. Oh, so there goes the idea of the benevolent protectors. Some of the versions of the myths do seem to focus more on their less pleasant sides. Mm-hmm. So, Poriasi... I think that's how I'm supposed to pronounce it. Anyway, a beautiful young woman volunteered for the mission of taking on um, Monyai and siblings. She convinced him that she was in love with him and wanted to marry him. But... <laughs> of course there was a but. Yeah. She wanted to meet Monyai's siblings before the wedding ceremony, so he left her behind and went in search of his brothers, leaving the gentle Teyuyagwa to look after her. He finally rounded them all up. We've already met Mboi Tui, but there was also Yasi Yatere, Kurupi, Luison, and Ao Ao. The wedding rites began in Tayuyagwa's cave, since it was hard for him to leave his home due to his mobility issues. And apparently this was an open bar wedding. It certainly didn't take the brothers long to get themselves more than a little inebriated, like drunken stupor inebriated. Meanwhile, this is exactly what Poriasi was waiting for, so she sneaks back to the cave's entrance to signal her people for the attack. But Monyai wakes up and catches her red-handed, coiling his body around her to prevent a possible escape. Poriasi does the only thing she can to make sure the mission still succeeds, and she signals her comrades to set the entire area on fire. She doesn't survive, but neither do the seven brothers. Ooh, huh. Well, as a yeah. yeah, that's like 
Wow. Okay. As a reward for her willing sacrifice, Tupa, the sun god, and pretty much a great-grandfather of the seven monstrous siblings, carries her soul to the heavens and turns her into hmm, a star in the east, so she heralds the dawn, the light of dawn itself. The phrasing I found is a bit hazy on that particular story. Yeah, um, there is also a version in which the relationship between the brothers' parents, Tao and Kirana, is consensual and actually a love match. Kirana's people are not exactly thrilled with that, and Kirana's mother goes undercover, disguising herself as a young woman, taking the name Poryasi and spearheading the mission to defeat her unsavory grandchildren. Wow, okay, that is some plot twist right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow, that's dedication. <laughs> so let's keep hopping around. In Brazil, in the law of the Tupi people, there's a serpent I found some highly contradictory statements about, both equally fascinating but confusing. Agreed. Both versions describe the Boitata as a serpent wreathed in flames, possibly also horned, but with eyes so bright staring at them will blind you. But it's on the nature of the beast that the two versions differ. One version states that indigenous folklore worships the creature as a protector of nature, and while he's considered benevolent, you would do well to not mess with his forests. That can get you killed and eaten. Yep. And the serpent supplements his diet of forest defilers. Ew, with the eyes of dead animals. Ugh. Oh, gross. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's look at the other version that classifies Boitata as a regional will-of-the-wisp variation. I'm guessing the glowy eyes have something to do with that. This legend has it that the serpent is actually one of the survivors of a great deluge. Afterwards, he left the safety of his cave and snacked on the corpses of those less fortunate. Mm-hmm. Now, Boitata was a picky one, and he ate only the eyes and left the rest of the cadavers. The light he collected from the eyes is actually what made his own eyes glowy, according to the story. It gave him immensely improved night vision, but left him almost blinded in the daylight. Next up, also from Brazil, is one serpent that will sound very familiar to lovers of creature movies. The Boyuna. Ooh, this myth from the Amazon region takes many forms and many names. But if I were to list them all, you mythsters would guess the movie we recognized here far too quickly. So we'll skip that bit. <laughs> That's slightly mean, but I kind of love it. Let's play that game. Anyway, the myths surrounding Boyuna range from a goddess of the water to a snake also known as... Don't say it! Onictus Murinus. <laughs> Good one. The name itself basically means black snake. It's also referred to as Cobra Grande, big snake. So that doesn't give us a lot to work with just yet. Big is far too vague a descriptor. Buena grows up to 200 meters long and 10 meters wide. It's got huge eyes, and those two are glowy. 
Some descriptions also mention large canines growing up from the lower jaw, and the upper jaw has holes to accommodate these fangs, which then stick out the top like horns. Ooh, here's another clue. When Buena swims, its body creates a huge V-shaped bow wave that I definitely saw in that movie. Yeah, and despite its size, it is really good at hiding underwater. Another clue. Ooh, hoo, hoo. <laughs> um, its stench is enough to make people dizzy, and it makes loud rumbling noises, and it digs holes to accommodate its bulk, which makes it extremely hard to spot. Mm. Which is probably why it's so good at hiding underwater. It isn't really well adapted to life out of the water. So in the dry season, when water levels drop, it goes in search of deeper water, gouging out new channels for streams to flow through. Its presence in the water is enough to impregnate women when they're close by. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that wasn't in the movie. <laughs> that is that is some stud. <laughs> Like, I'm just in the same water as you, and that will make you pregnant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it does take the fun out of it, though. Um, except, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much fun it would be with a snake. But yeah, okay, back to the point. Um, so what was in the movie is several instances of boat trouble. And what do you know? Boyuna has the power to immobilize ships in the middle of the river, giving it plenty of time to mesmerize a crew member or two with its glowing eyes. But here's where we truly diverge from the movie. Can you guess yet? I'll give one more clue, and it really is a giveaway. A more recognizable name for Eunectes murinus is Giant Anaconda. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we were talking about the movie Anaconda featuring a big-ass snake, a guy who has totally lost all connection to reality in his pursuit for this legendary snake, and a boat that first gets something lodged in its propeller and then gets stuck at a waterfall. Yeah, so... I mean, I can see where they got their inspiration. So the more magical traits that carry us further away from the Hollywood version are, um, odd, to say the least. For one, a boyuna has the power to steal someone's shadow. I don't know why it would do that. Maybe it's a good alternative when it's not really that hungry. I don't know. But the victim, also referred to as an asombrado, wastes away and dies within days. I mean, I'm going to kind of go out on a tangent here. In a lot of cultures around the world, the shadow holds part of the soul. So this might be a type of feeding on the soul mm -hmm. as opposed to feeding on the flesh there. Yeah, that does that does make sense. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. But for those times when hiding underwater just doesn't cut it, a boyana is also a master camouflager, posing as a ghost ship sometimes, either a steamboat or a sailboat. Something it also apparently does when not really hungry is take a person captive and carry them to its underwater realm, where they'll live on as river snakes. Sounds better than being eaten. Yeah. I mean, if someone you care about just got dragged off underwater by a predator, I guess it's nicer to hope that's what happened, rather than envision them being eaten. That makes sense. So, if we hadn't noticed yet, Boyunas are highly intelligent, and you can talk to them when you summon them in a seance. 
We're not trying to do that. But, huh. Jazz. Oh, fine. No sense of adventure, this one. Plenty of adventure, but <laughs> yeah, no. Anyway, let's look at origin stories. Apparently, there's two ways to become a boina. Sometimes a boa constrictor that grows too big turns into one. But sometimes humans acting shitty creates one. Why am I not surprised? I know, right? Like, uh, <laughs> oh, humans. <laughs> the Puina who lived in the Itakawinas River was one of these, it seems. A young girl got pregnant and she was too scared to tell her parents. So she gave birth in secret and threw the baby in the river. And it turned into a giant magical snake? Mm-hmm. Okay. But stories about giant snakes aren't exclusive to the Brazilian Amazon River Basin. They're common throughout the region, and it makes sense because giant snakes are a thing over there. And like most reptiles, they don't stop growing at any point during their life. Although the biological version doesn't actually grow beyond a record length of eight meters, or at least that's not been recorded, it's got to be something that plays into the imagination. Mm -hmm. And I bet eight meters looks 10 times that when it's right in front of you. Like, yeah. most humans aren't even two meters. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not going to test that out. <laughs> but, but yeah, <laughs> while I couldn't track down from which culture the Boyuna was born, both the Kayapo and Desana tribes in Brazil know stories of giant snakes under various names as well. In the Peruvian Amazon, giant anaconda law speaks of Yakumama, meaning mother of water. People believed she was the mother of all aquatic creatures and she'd suck up anything alive that entered the river within a hundred steps of her location. I'm guessing that, like the Buana, you couldn't spot her too easily. Nope. But people would blow a conch shell before going for a swim. Apparently, she would show herself if she was there in that case. Um, sadly, there's not much to be found on her beyond a one-paragraph Wikipedia entry and one reference that mentions her by name only. That's such a bummer, because she sounds really cool. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I want to learn more about her. Mm -hmm. But since we can't at the moment, why don't we end with the southernmost tip of the continent, Patagonia? Here's where we encounter the Lemish, or Yemish. It's got the body of, well, what looks like a fox, and then the tail of a serpent. Okay. And what's more, this particular beastie's tail is quite nimble. It's in fact prehensile, meaning it can handle objects, like victims about to be crushed. Mm -hmm. And what's weird is that the name Lemish translates as water tiger and not water fox. What did strike me as odd is that the earliest record one can find is in a paper dating from the late 19th century from a bloke called Ameguino. And the indigenous people of the creature's homeland, the Aonikenk, 
Minor side note, in literature, these people are often referred to as Tehuelche, but this is a term apparently first used by other indigenous tribes hailing from Chile and Argentina, and now also employed by researchers, and as far as I can determine, it lumps together a bunch of different indigenous cultures, so we decided here to use the term by which these people identify themselves, hence our use of Aoninkenk, although you'll often find reference to Tehuelche if you look into the Lemish. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget the actual biological non-cryptid critter called the Patagonian dragon. It has very few similarities with the kind of creatures we usually discuss, but it's got the right name. Um, the Patagonian dragon is not a serpent or anything else we've come across that we've categorized under dragon or even dragon adjacent. It's a wingless insect with high concentrations of glycerol in its blood. Glycerol? Mm-hmm. Antifreeze, basically. Oh, wow. Which it needs because the creature's entire life cycle plays out on the glaciers of the Andea Southern Ice Field, where it devours not maidens or knights, but the algae growing in tiny crevices in the ice. Wow. That is a really fascinating beastie. And it makes me want to write a story about a dragon with antifreeze for blood. That, that does sound pretty cool. Yeah. That would totally fit in with my dragon stories. Mm-hmm. Do it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. I will and I will add it to the endless list of projects. <laughs> mm. Ever growing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um. So this brings us to the end of the last of our sort of place bound episodes which is a bit sad right but we do have one more dragon episode right before yes, we close out the yes, season we do as mentioned in our last episode um we still have dragons from the african diaspora left to discuss because they fit in neither southern nor northern america exclusively um this is where most of what I could find about the African diaspora religions hails from, from the southern US, uh, for example, um, New Orleans has got a strong um, culture there. Um, but Brazil featured as well. My, I'm having a blank moment in my brain, so I can't remember off the top of my head where else we will be looking. Um, Cuba? I feel like Cuba's in there, yeah. Anyway, it means one more dragon episode. <laughs> it means stay tuned, Mysters, because we're not quite done with dragons yet. And while there will be similarities with the African dragons we already discussed in the Africa episode, it's a bit, yeah, there's, there's some differences and I really enjoyed diving into them. So... Mm -hmm. Stay tuned, and we will meet up again in a fortnight for more dragons. Until then, we wish you days like dragons meeting clouds. Later, Mythsters. He also uses his hand... <laughs> hand tenny. Oh, that's, that's a different thing, he Jess. Also <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah, very much. He also... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> because what he's using no. it for now, it's it's very okay. Yeah. <laughs> he also you <laughs> Oh god, please don't let me get the giggles. <laughs>